State of Digital Publishing is a publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this episode, we speak with Richard Marquez, CEO at RevContent, about the state of publisher guarantees. RevContent is a leading content discovery platform helping advertisers drive highly engaged audiences through technology. Let's begin. Hi, Richard. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it today. No problem. I'm really excited to, to talk to you. Absolutely. This is one of the, from our um, online event last month, what, this is one of the things that actually came out on the topic of publisher guarantees, um, especially as publishers are looking for more long-term relationships rather than just who, who can work alongside publishers and rather than a solution provider who can just sit on the side and, you know, Richard and Rev Content are doing interesting things in the space. And I think it's definitely worthwhile to speak about that more in detail. But before we jump into that, Richard, I'd love to get a bit more, whoever hasn't heard much about Rev Content and even a bit more about you, I'd love you just to share a bit more about your background. Sure. So my name is Richard Marquez. I am the CEO of Rev Content. We are one of the leading content recommendation platforms on the web. A little bit about me, I've been at the company now for over nine years. I actually took this job right out of college. It sort of happened by a little bit of luck and just random circumstance. We are based in Sarasota, Florida, which is we're a little bit different than most of the advertising companies that sort of exist in the space. A lot of them based out of New York City or LA or even Tel Aviv, you know, we're big fish in a small pond per se. And I actually grew up about an hour south of here in a town called Venice. I never in my wildest dreams expected to have a career in Sarasota. I was definitely the guy who wanted to get out of the small town and go live in New York or San Francisco or something, pursue a career. And this opportunity just sort of came about. We were actually spun out of an affiliate network that was called ClickBooth. The idea being we can create a platform for, for affiliate publishers to acquire traffic and get eyeballs to their, to their pages and ultimately the offers. We saw a lot of momentum around 2011 when, when I started and we spun out from ClickBooth completely right after that. Fast forward to today, things have, this space didn't really exist when I started this content recommendation space. And now it's, it's a very large part of the online advertising ecosystem. And more importantly, it's a critical part of the revenue portfolio for for publishers. And then on the demand side, the audience acquisition and, you know, sales funnel for for advertisers. Absolutely. Um, And people might basically see that as just like content recommendations at the bottom, like how, how would you in short say how that's different from like native advertising platforms? Is it just basically because this is your own media and you can control it more rather than having to push people to those other widgets on the website? How, how, do you, how would you say you guys would differ from other, other similar solutions out there? Yeah, so you know, native advertising and content recommendation or content discovery, sometimes those, those phrases are sort of intertwined and used within the lexicon interchangeably, I guess. I kind of keep them all under one umbrella, but just to be specific, we, our core business 
is on the end of article widgets that you see on publisher sites. So if you're on the LA Times and you're reading an article and you get to the end, you'll see a module that says, you know, from around the web or sponsored stories, something like that. And we will strike deals with publishers to sort of have exclusive rights to that real estate. And then our, our marketplace platform on the demand side, our advertisers will be bidding for that inventory. The biggest difference between what we do and what more of a traditional like native advertising platform, like let's say share through or triple lift does is that our JavaScript is hard coded right onto publisher pages. So it's a fixed placement that's there for every page view that happens on a publisher site. Typically these page views happen on article pages, but most of our publishers also have placements on section fronts and home pages. I think the big difference from the user experience and the monetization side of things comes down to the sort of audience mindset when they're engaging with these content recommendation modules. It's a very valuable concept to have someone be reading an article they complete the article or they watch a video, whether maybe they're reading, a, going through a gallery, they finish that consumption experience and they enter this mindset of, okay, I'm done. Now, what do I do? You know, we try to be there at the right place at the right time. And we match content with that user to maximize publisher yield without compromising user experience. And, you know, the, the hope is to drive a click into the widget and generate revenue for a publisher and also generate whether it's you know someone driving a sale or a lead or an app install, um, a video view, whatever it is on the advertiser side of the business, we're trying to have this perfect balance of creating this monetization ecosystem while servicing consumers who are reading and ingesting articles on or consuming articles on on the open web without being intrusive. And that's a battle that will will never end. That's sort of the, the mission here. And I you know I think it's really important work ultimately. Publishing is really, really hard. There are so many factors in play and publishers are fighting so many different battles, whether it's internally or externally. We want to help them. You know, we're, we're one of many, many vendors that publishers work with. And mm -hmm. our goal is to elevate their business, whether that's by being a strategic partner that can present opportunities to drive more revenue and yield, or it's having strategic conversations around that user experience and the content experience and working with them to drive more page engagement and keep people on the site longer. There are a lot of different ways that we can, that a relationship sort of plays out when, when you work with us. Let's delve into that a bit more. Um, so we'll, before we started, we were both speaking and it had some agreements that a lot of media publishers have seen a bit of a bump with the traffic, obviously because people are wanting to keep more up to date with what's going on with this scenario and, and all that. And you mentioned as well that local publishers were seeing more of a benefit my question is two-part. Why do you think it's more beneficial for local publishers? Uh, well, why do they see more benefit? And, and how do you think content recommendations could be more of a benefit in this context? And um, just in general, so how, how are you seeing the publisher guarantees? How have you seen them change? Yeah, and you're speaking about everything that's been happening with COVID-19 since you know early March, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the obvious answer is traffic. Looking at our data, the the day where things went from, let's call it one to 10, in terms of just the public interest here in the States specifically with COVID-19 was March 15th. It was, I think that was a Sunday. We just saw a tremendous spike in traffic. It was 
pretty much across the board, but very heavily skewed in terms of the quantification of the spike in local news. And I think it's a it's pretty simple. People hear about this happening. Let me just use myself as an example. I mentioned earlier, I'm in Sarasota. The week before that, I was in Disney World with my with my family and we got back into town on Sunday and everything was sort of business as usual at Disney. As soon as we got home, there was news that the first two, one of the first two cases in Florida happened to be in Sarasota. The first thing we did is go to SNN, which is our, our local sort of news provider here in Sarasota. And we wanted to do research and kind of learn more about what was going on. We couldn't really go to CNN or any of the, the big national news publications to get that because it's a very, very specific regionalized category story that that's only relevant here in town. We just saw that effect happen across the country in all of these different communities as COVID sort of started to pick up steam and people started to really, really be worried and wanted to be more informed about it. I think some of the big platforms have done a really good job creating tools to educate users on, on how things look locally, nationally, globally, et cetera. But at, at the, in the middle of March and you know the beginning of April, a lot of those tools didn't really exist and people were turning to their trusted local news source to, to get the information. And so ultimately, our, our widgets, like I mentioned earlier, happened to be on the page of these publishers. So we just saw that big spike in traffic happen as well. And how about in terms of the publisher guarantee side as well? Like, what have you seen from that front? We've always been, publisher guarantees are, it's such an interesting topic. I think it's, it, there are many, many good things about them, but there are also many bad things about them. And there are a lot of horror stories out there that happen when publishers sign guaranteed deals. I'll speak specifically to publisher guarantees in the post-COVID media environment. We are very much open to offering publisher guarantees, but the caveat there is, you know, we, we do this where the expectation is transparency and reason from the publisher. What I think has happened in this industry traditionally is people go out, they talk to a publisher, we offer whatever rate or a, a fixed revenue amount for a month or a quarter or a year, whatever it is, and then we enter the deal and everyone just kind of carries on business as usual. Yeah. What ultimately happened if you look three to five years ago, and we were, we were guilty of this just as, as well as, as other players in the space, Publishers would sign a large guaranteed deal and they didn't necessarily understand what the contingencies were for that, for that deal. You know, in order to collect this revenue, the widget has to go here. It needs to look like this. The content has to be, you know, this level of quality. You can't put anything between the widget and the end of the article, et cetera, et cetera. There's just a lot of contingencies that in the publishing space over the course of a year, a deal that lasts for a year, two years, sometimes three or four years, it makes it really hard to be flexible and operate your business and sort of evolve the way your site looks and feels to users over time when you're bound to a contract that was signed, you know, 12, 18, 24 months before. Yep. And that's, you know, that's a tough pill to swallow. We've seen a lot of attrition in the publisher space in terms of personnel where many times people take a, a job in, you know, managing revenue for a publisher and they're sort of stuck with a deal that they, they had nothing to do with, and they're bound to the terms of that deal, and they have to sort of drive yield where there's only so much they can do in terms of the page real estate and what they're doing on the site. 
And that left a lot a, a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, understandably so. In the post-COVID environment, revenue is down in a lot of places, or there, you know, as traffic goes up, some people are seeing attrition on CPM and they're looking for for ways to make that up. We're happy to help make that up. I'm totally fine with that. But I think what's really important is we have to understand, you know, what does the traffic look like? Just bare minimums here. You know, the, the ask is what was your pre-COVID revenue and what can we do to keep you at that level? You can't expect us to come and offer a guaranteed deal where we're going in completely blind and just making up a number. Ultimately, w- nobody wants to be in a situation where we're sitting here negotiating a deal after, after it's gone through. And the only way to, to accomplish that is by having the highest amount of transparency from the onset. It's been going well. I think a lot of people have been very open to this as, as they should be. But sometimes people come to us just, you know, it's, it's very much an, an inbound conversation where someone hits us up and they're saying, hey, you know, I'd like a guaranteed deal. What can you offer me? And it's, I don't want to come off as crass or be overselling someone, nor do our, our, our salespeople. That's a very loaded question. What can you guarantee me? So let's have a conversation. And as long as people are open to doing that, there's benefit for all parties. And ultimately, our goal here is just make it where publishers understand where their revenue is going to be in a month in two months and six months, et cetera, and not have any surprises for their forecasts. At the end of the day, we exist to help publishers thrive, generate revenue, pay staff, create compelling, unique, high quality content and journalism for users online and offer that for free to users. And that's sort of the litmus test when, when we have conversations so yeah, I mean, that's, that's my guaranteed spiel. <laughs> Has there been anything internally that you guys have shifted, like maybe uh, upskilling people in certain areas in, in order to better manage those conversations or anything that help, will help with getting yeah. with, those, with those preloaded questions? How, how do you guys manage that aspect? Yeah, so our, you know, one of the things that's unique about us is we're a relatively small company in terms of size of, of the staff. We're almost entirely based in Sarasota and most of our team has been around for a long time, you know, five, six plus years. We're all very, very comfortable with the expertise that we have at all levels of the company. And the team just manages those conversations themselves. We don't have some sort of scripted playbook on how to, how to have these conversations. Many of the relationships already exist because we've spent so much time going to conferences. We get on planes, go to New York or LA and, and you know, meet people face to face and have meaningful conversations about people's businesses and, and what their challenges are. So we really try to understand what makes our partners tick. So it's not like we're doing anything different. I think the only thing we're sort of over-indexing for currently is really pressing the issue on the transparency side there. We're going to guarantee something. Ultimately, we don't want to have to ever talk about this again once the deal is in place. And the only way to accomplish that is by just being very upfront at the beginning and being very realistic too. Reason prevails over anything else. Transparency, common sense, conversations, and everything that transpires. Yeah. Have you seen potentially any like partnerships come out as a result, like with potentially creating tra- traffic that works or syndication that works? Has that been something that has foray now that people are looking for more concrete results? If you haven't seen it, what's your thoughts around that in general? So you mean people driving audience to their to their sites? Or even complementary niches as well that might benefit publishers, even though they're not, not might be the same company, but might be just helping each other out. 
one of the things that sort of happened in, in this environment is, and, and you hear it when you when you listen to Evan Spiegel and Mark Zuckerberg on on their earnings calls, the the phrase direct response is getting sort of tossed around more than it has maybe ever. And the reason for that is because advertising dollars are sort of shifting towards that because the the medium just works so well in this environment. In a world where you know things like sports aren't happening anymore, big brand dollars from guys like you know, Coke and the WPPs and the publicist groups of the world, that audience is gone. Those events aren't happening. So where, where can you shift those dollars and where can you get a feedback loop where you know how your marketing dollars are working for you? Direct response is sort of the answer to that. Platforms like ours really, really cater to that type of advertising with the highest level of a feedback loop. Our data comes back to our advertisers in almost real time. There's a less than 20 minute delay to get to get data on your engagement. Are you getting conversions? Are you, are you driving meaningful results, results for your offers? And a lot of people use our API to make programmatic decisions and optimize in real time. So that's a very, very good thing. And I think it will be interesting to see how traditional large brands adopt the direct response medium over time. In the grand scheme of things, it feels like we've been in this situation forever, but it's only been uh, what it's been a little over three months now, and I understand that it's not a small ask to have somebody just completely shift their strategy to be completely tailored to direct response. But platforms like ours are very, very effective for those types of acquis- audience acquisition. Have you seen that be more permanent now? Because we, when we were also speaking prior as well, a lot of that has started tapering off that increase in the media consumption. What signs have you seen so far now that things are tapering off? I mean, it's just sort of status quo. I think CPMs generally for just programmatic advertising and, and display advertising are starting to come back. Digiday sort of wrote an article about this. I think it was either yesterday or this this morning. And we're, we're far enough into this where this is the new normal and you have to adapt or die and people are just sort of taking it in stride that I guess you need to figure out ultimately a lot of the conversations I personally have been having fall into the bucket of operational optimization of your dollars. So just making sure that every dollar you're spending, you know, what are you getting back from that and maximizing the efficiency of, of your time as well. So how that matters in our world are things like page speed and latency. It's more important than ever to maximize all of those types of arms of our product. And we're spending a lot of time in the back end and our developers are spending a lot of time trying to get more juice out of, I guess, the fruit that we already have that's all going to have a downstream positive effect for publishers. Things like PageSpeed are a conversation that happens almost every day for us when we're talking to partners because it's an easy way if you can sort of unwind that, that knot, I, I guess it's an, it's an easy way to drive more impact for the dollars that you're putting out and the page views that you already have. In terms of other short-term uh, solutions as well, uh, besides PageSpeed performance and better operationalizing processes as and sales and everything else is there any other areas that you commonly see that publishers could be better doing i think now more than ever content is king that's a phrase that's been tossed around for years that's never been more true people are so leaned in and they're in front of a screen 
all the time. You know, commuters for the last couple of months that's completely gone. People are either at their desk at home, in front of a TV, in front of a phone, whatever. And I, people are just looking for ways to entertain themselves. And content is such a broad word. It can mean a lot of different things. I think that's really, really important right now is really, really evaluating your content strategy and making sure that the, the content consumption experience is of the highest quality possible to sort of keep re-engaging audience and, and keep people coming back to drive value. What are some of the recent wins and gains that you've seen from existing, in terms of case studies, I think you, you was mentioning something about Salon before about testing different vendors and was that more of a short-term play or was that something that happened in a long-term process? So we've had a relationship with Salon for a long time. They tested a lot of different vendors at the beginning of the year. And, you know, with us, they saw a 20 plus percent increase in, in revenue um, and ended up signing a deal with us because of that. Um, you know, just to be transparent here, that all predated the the events of happening with COVID, but you know, their, their yield has, has maintained through, through all of this. And they're a great partner of ours that I think sort of defines what I'm saying in terms of high quality content. And then what I mentioned earlier with publishing being very hard, it's a, it's a really, really cutthroat business. And, you know, there are a lot of stories out there of how things have played out with Salon over the years, but they're doing their thing. And I think they, they have some really, really good journalism and they're a good case study for for why we exist and why I think this business really matters in the grand scheme of things. We've spoken about short, some of the short-term wins, which is very, absolutely applicable. What are some of the things publishers need to look at in terms of testing and, optim- and figuring out new things to then move on to more of a long-term sort of play? What are your thoughts around that? Something that we've seen a lot that's come up in a lot of publisher conversations of late is off-platform ways to drive engagement and you know grow audience over time and ultimately like i said earlier drive value to your audience is email it's been around forever i think it's got a lot of downside in terms of just reputationally when you you know can spam and and a, a lot of there's a lot of blindness in the inbox when when you go in the morning and there're tons of different newsletters you can subscribe to but when you really think of loyalty and driving value and what keeps people coming back. Email is, is such an easy way to sort of have, if you can execute it correctly, you can create engagement, be top of mind from a user and drive people into the site if, if you are executing that correctly. And also you can do it while driving revenue in a non-intrusive way. But you know, I, I mentioned this word a couple of times, but it, it all comes down to a value add for users. It's a quality over quantity play, in my opinion. Be very, very cognizant of what you're putting out there and ask yourself, are, are you putting this out there just to sort of check a box and, and have some more content be put out into, into the ether? Or do you have an end goal in mind? And, you know, almost looking at it from the perspective of a direct response marketer, um, you're just measuring ROI in real time based on what the output is. It was interesting that you mentioned about email because you know, there's been talks about conversations that I've had. There's been push notifications as well. There's been a push. And I was wondering whether or not there's um, any co-channel optimization plays that you do or you suggest to publishers to help them with pushing more revenue towards uh, the, the content recommendations and widgets that you guys put on. Yeah, push notifications are, are 
definitely something that I think that gained a lot of traction a couple of years ago and it had a ton of potential and it still has a lot of potential, but I think bad actors really sort of put a bad taste in everyone's mouth for that. You know, it did not check the box for a positive user experience or value add. When you get a push notification from a publisher, you expect to have, when you click that, you expect to have a certain consumption experience with a brand that you trust. And there are a lot of people who, who ended up not delivering that and, and using ads to uh, understandably drive revenue, but it ultimately drove a wedge and created distrust between users and brands. But I think push notifications still have a lot of potential. It just all comes down to execution. Um, and like I said earlier, quality over quantity. You can't just pepper people with these things all day the same way you can't just pepper them with emails all day and then you know, kind of ask what's going on when they're not coming to the site anymore. Attention spans are so short that you really need to think long and hard about what, when, and where you're putting in front of people. Yeah, what's the testing approach you take then? Like if it's, for example, if you're driving traffic through any of those platforms or if it's purely just from traditional uh, traffic sources, which then comes to the, to the widgets, what sort of the testing and feedback loop that you need to go through in order to then determine and say, okay, I can sugar these type of strategies or I can, I can better refine what recommendations come up as a result of X? Yeah, so we look at everything and the decision-making side of things algorithmically. We can see the refer, and when a user comes into a site, we have an understanding of which platform or medium drove them to that site before they even see the widget. And our algorithm is making those decisions in, in real time and then using the aggregated data set for sort of all of it to make informed decisions. And it optimizes them and makes them better over time. You know, organic traffic is is the golden goose that's as good as it gets but you know i i don't think we are actually not i don't think i'm just i'm saying this as a fact we are pretty agnostic about traffic sources in terms of or where people are coming from when they arrive to a publisher site because the platform just does its thing and and optimizes accordingly where everything is treated we, we reward quality over quantity so the signaling that's done, whether it's on a device, a geolocation, if the refer is maybe from a news aggregator app or it's coming from Facebook or Twitter or Reddit, if it's coming from a syndication network, we collect all of that information and accordingly make decisions with the content that we pipe into the widget. And then on the demand side where advertisers are bidding for the traffic, we're trying to drive them the most value for, for the, the bids they're placing on placements in real time and we have the what we believe is the highest level of transparency for those decisions so we want to make sure that our advertisers at all times know where the traffic is coming from and then they have the ability in real time to optimize up down on or off of any given traffic source um, any different any given sort of operating system zip code geo whatever to get the most out of their their campaigns and their budgets is there any examples of clients that you know of that are, are sort of doing a lot of testing at the moment or have done testing um, that you can share? Yeah. You know, I will, we did a case study with a company called um, three, three founders publishing. They used to buy traffic from us via uh, a third party DSP. And they're just contingencies that come with that. Uh, we typically try to cordon off our highest quality traffic to only be available to first party advertisers. 
they ended up coming directly to us to test and they saw something like 10x increase in conversions when they signed up for an account directly and accessed that new sort of funnel of traffic that they didn't have access to before. And they're allocating their budget to the highest quality traffic that they can. Um, and most importantly, they're right pricing everything. Not all traffic is created equal. You know, some some traffic is worth a dollar, some's worth 20 cents, some is worth five dollars. The beauty of our business, and I think the space as a whole, is that you have the signaling to make sure that your campaign is getting the most for those dollars in real time. And, and our goal is to create a very, very large marketplace of advertisers who are all sort of doing this at scale. And you know, the self-service side of things is very, very important for us, where people don't need to be reliant on having a rep or an account manager handholding them and walking them through how to be successful in order to be successful. There's a finite of number of hours in the day and everyone has sort of their own thing going on. We're a global company. We have clients located all around the world and we tried to build this thing where it's intuitive enough where people can be self-sufficient and succeed on their own. And I think that three founders example is a perfect example of that. While they do have a very good relationship with the sales side of our company, I think the platform empowered them to be successful and have sustained success over time. How about for those that are just sort of thinking uh, just in the more of the beginnings, beginning of the journey, is there anything that they need to look, factor in when they're going to start testing out content discovery for their website? Like, uh, do you think that there's any best practices in terms of layouts or even by industry or by vertical that maybe they need to factor in? What are your thoughts on on people who are potentially starting out on their journey on content discovery? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I think one of the big misconceptions about content discovery is that people treat it like traditional display advertising. So what I mean by that, this is a, a native storytelling, long form content. That's what succeeds in this medium. If you come in and let's say you're, you're, buying traffic on AdX through the typical 300 by 250 MedRec units out there, and you have more of an aggressive aggressive call to action that's very straightforward. You know, uh, I'll just use an example. That's if you're a Grubhub or something, and it's, you know, click here, download the Grubhub app, and get 20% off your first order. When you click the ad, you go to a landing page that has very little text on it. You put an email address in or something, and you just download the app and sort of start the process from there. That doesn't really work in native. When someone's in the reading an article on, on a site and they get to the end of that article and they, they see our widget, they're in a content discovery mindset and they're looking where to sort of engage next. What has the highest form of success is storytelling. So someone will engage with an ad, go to a landing page, something like a blog post, an article, a sponsored story. It's got to have meat on the bones there. There has to be it's just continuing the funnel and, and sort of bringing someone in telling a story. You can then, whether you do it downstream where they click and go to another page or it just happens with the flow of the actual experience itself from the user side, then you can go into that more direct call to action. But you need to qualify that user by telling a story at the onset. If people come into this and think they can just take their their traditional display ad funnel and just sort of copy paste it right into content rec, native, whatever we want to call this, they're not going to have a lot of success. 
the good news is if they're not having success, they'll know it in, in real time and they can sort of adjust budgets or pause or do whatever on an as needed basis. But this is sort of a different animal and people need to adjust accordingly and really, really figure out a way to, to have compelling storytelling to drive value and results for their campaigns. How do they reduce uh, risk when they're going to try something out new like content discovery? Yeah, you can, uh, you know, for, for us specifically, if, if someone is, is serious about testing this medium and, and they, they really do want to make it work and, and, and they have done the research and done the heavy lifting and, and have an idea and understand the KPIs and what they're working toward, there are a couple ways you can do that. One is just using the budgets, you know, keep the budgets low, keep the risk really low, collect that initial data set. You know, for $100, you can get a, a ton of, of learnings and, and learn where to optimize and, and what works and what doesn't work in your funnel. Depending on, on the advertiser, we're also very open to doing different types of matches where let's say someone wants to deposit, let's just call it $1,000 for a test. We'll, we can match that, take on some of the risk to, to sort of make the, the burden be a little bit less. But I think that's all done on sort of a case-by-case, case, unfortunately. There are some people out there who have been preparing for a long time to enter the native space, and they have developers who create funnels that are specific to native, and they really, really understand what they're signing up for. They have much more of a shot at success than people who are just sort of saying, hey, this worked on, on Facebook, or it worked in Google or OpenX. I'm just going to run those same campaigns. And then the other thing too is do something unique. A lot of people come to us and they, they say, I see this or I see that vertical. I want to run that vertical and I'm going to go take all the traffic and, and spend a lot. And you know, if I, if I have positive ROI, my, buzz, my budget is unlimited. That, yeah. I hear that all the time. That's not a great way to approach natives. You, know, you, you can't come into this and just expect to take market share and traffic from people who've been optimizing this medium for sometimes years, you know, those, those people are, are experts and they have so much of an advantage over you. So, you know, you need to make that decision yourself. If you, if you want to go approach things that way, that's fine if you do, but you know, just going into it, you need to know what you're signing up for. What are the timeframes that you need to consider when like, for example, from start to like continue to progress or, for the refine the campaign, what's the time frame that you need to factor in? I think time is a part of it, but also a significant data sample matters too. I, I think if you're if you're going out there and you can get, you know, between a thousand and let's call it three thousand clicks in a specific and let's just use a specific device here. Let's say you're targeting um, users on Android devices or maybe users on iOS devices only that's an, a significant enough sample size to get an initial understanding of what does not work and optimizing off of that on the front end for the sites driving you traffic. But then more importantly, on the back end, looking at your metrics and your analytics to understand what parts of your funnel are working and which ones aren't. You know, how far into the experience are people going before they drop off? You really, really have to understand that and then optimize accordingly. I don't see any reason. Typically, if people go to buy with us and they are serious about it and they and they put some some meaningful budget into it, they they're pretty good to go after probably a week or two. And then within 30, 60, and 90 days, that's typically how we kind of break up testing over the course of time. You can kind of be self-sufficient. 
by the end of those first 30 days. And then also using different platforms to sort of take on the heavy lifting for you in the optimization sense. We have a very robust stats API that is very, very flexible and allows people to do a lot of things on the bidding and reporting side. And if you are savvy and, and you understand how those work, I, I assume most serious marketers do. And there are so many resources out there to educate yourself on how to use these types of tools. That's also going to give you a tremendous advantage because machines are just sort of smarter than humans when it comes to ingesting data and making decisions. But there also needs to be a human element because machines aren't as capable of that sort of intangible sentiment that happens. What's the long-term considerations that publishers need to take and do you have any examples of any clients that have actually has been around from your experience that are still doing well long-term strategies that are working well you know i think being disciplined about what vendors you're using is is important you know understanding the implications where there's a an opportunity cost for every new line item you add and every new module you put on a page and you really need to be cognizant of, of what that, what that is. I don't think it's the same for every publisher, but whether that opportunity cost comes down to the wedge you drive with, with audiences and, you know, are you helping or hurting your relationship with your audience by putting this or that on the page is, is a very simple thing to evaluate when you're, when you're talking to a vendor. And then secondarily, who has your best interest in mind as a business? Who's asking intuitive, thought-provoking questions? Ultimately, are entering partnerships here. And a partnership happens both ways. Be leery for, for who's out there to make a quick buck and who's trying to just put money in their own pocket at your expense. You, know, you, need, to, you need to figure out a way to identify those types of bad actors and find true partners who care about your business and are going to help you grow the business rather than hold things against you um, and, and, work and, and row the ship in a different direction, per se. And then ultimately, you ask what's, what's working as a long-term strategy. It's the core of the product itself, which is, is content. Nothing beats high-quality content, engaging content, entertaining content. That's what, what trounces everything. No algorithm can really game that system i appreciate uh, the fundamental advice richard i appreciate it i guess shifting gears a bit uh, what's what's some of the plans that rev content has in in the roadmap and and what do you what's the future um, sort of direction that you you want to take rev content personally as well you know we're in an inter- in, in a unique position you know i i took over as ceo at the beginning of 2020 publicly. I've been sort of operating things for a while now. Um, So I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the short-term goals of the organization. We are a self-funded business. We're completely bootstrapped. We've never raised money. So we have to be extremely, extremely disciplined with the decisions we're making as a company. And I kind of, at the beginning of the year, that was a huge focus for me is to really get an understanding of the costs of you know just operating this business day to day and and getting an understanding of what our roadmap looks like in terms of the budgets and and being at or above our goals on the sales and revenue side of the business the only way we would be able to grow this business is by creating an offering that drives 
meaningful value to publishers and advertisers and drives a high quality experience that is sustainable and scalable as well for both publishers and advertisers. I think we definitely have accomplished that. We're growing, we're signing deals with, with great partners and, and things have been going really, really well in Q1 and now into Q2. I think the thing that leaves a lot to be desired for, I'm gonna just speak for all sort of ad tech content recommendation products as a whole is consumer utility. I, I think it's no question that these widgets, let's call them, um, leave a lot to be desired in terms of adding value to the content consumption experience. And that's a big initiative that I am passionate about solving. I don't think the work will ever be really done there. It's not like one day I'm going to say, hey, we did this and uh, all, all things are good on the, on the user utility side. So let's move on to the next thing. But I think we are way more cognizant of that because of the fact that we are a smaller organization in terms of our, our team size, we can be very, very nimble and we can be open to a lot of ideas that drive value for users. And I ultimately think if we're driving value for users on that consumption experience, we can drive value for our partners in terms of driving revenue. The fact that we are hard-coded onto these pages and those widgets are just permanently there for every page, page view that happens is a big deal. And we can, we can do a lot with that real estate. The million dollar question is what is it we want to do? And, you know, we need to stay disciplined and focused, like I mentioned earlier, and stay the course to not get distracted and lose, lose sight of the core business, which is sort of revenue module for publishers. So that's something that I'm really, really thinking a lot about. I don't have a specific answer for what that looks like. But the, the checkbox needs the, the litmus test for us internally when we work on product and we have product conversations in terms of just what our roadmap looks like is moving toward bolstering up the, the utility that we offer to users on the open web. I guess it's watch this space. I'm going to hear from you guys on what, what you come up with. Just to wrap things up, Richard, uh, from a professional career point of view, because you mentioned that you rose up in the ranks and eventually took over as CEO, what, what would be some advice you'd give in order to, for other people who want to go into the attic space and want to eventually become in the same position as you, what would be your key advice? Be patient, be willing to learn, be really, really hungry, and step way outside of your job description. I think one of the things that I, I, I was really fortunate in that when I started, we were a very small team. I think there were less than 10 of us at the time. So the ability to sort of step out of my quote unquote department and learn how the business operates in every aspect, whether that's the tech side, the ad op side, the sales side, even learning the processes for our accounting team and kind of how all that works. I spent a lot of time trying to understand every aspect of the business and sort of what makes the gears turn um, and what role everybody in the org plays and how that ultimately drives the business forward. And over the course of you know nine plus years, that knowledge all kind of culminated with me sort of operating this thing you know, as the CEO. But I'm just sort of steering the ship here. The team are the real people who are, who are driving this and they just have a thirst for improving in terms of their skill set, what they know as members of the team, whether it's things that are pertinent to rev content specifically, 
or just going out of their way to learn things about the industry. They're so, this industry is so interesting because it evolves so, so quickly. And the, some of the brightest minds out there are doing such unique things all the time. And you really need to go out of your way to whether it's talking to different partners or talking to your peers or listening to podcasts or reading articles, watching videos, YouTube, whatever it is, there's no shortage of information out there. You just have to go out of your way to find it and figure out how you can sort of use it to elevate, whether it's yourself and your role or elevate your team um, and thus, you know, elevate your company. That all kind of starts with you. But, you know, maybe that's unique to us because we're very, very much a startup. And I think the people who have had the most success at Rev Content, one thing they all share in common is the fact that they're so willing to step outside of their job description to sort of learn more, do more, and service their their partners by understanding things outside of just what their what their lane is, I guess you could say. And ask a lot of questions. That would be the last thing. Um, no questions are dumb questions. I know that's a a corny cliche, but I, I think it's true. Better to be sorry than safe. I'm going to flip that around. But um, absolutely. With that, Richard, I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Hey, I really appreciate you having me on. Hopefully we can do this again absolutely. in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing Podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.